We're continuing our journey through this incredible book that the Lord has given us. So let's read together in Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together over our time in God's word. Lord, we pray that your word would bear great fruit in our lives as we look to you and cry out, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Thinking about the story of Jonah a lot in the last few weeks, I think that often we do ourselves a disservice because we're so familiar with this story, we miss out on some of the absolutely incredible details of it. Like, there was literally a man sinking into an ocean that was just raging. And what would you do if you were thrown into an ocean without any hope of a boat coming to save you and you're sinking, 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 and you would probably cry out for help, God, save me. I was reminded of, uh, of a time when I was a child and I almost drowned in my uncle's swimming pool. There was like a float and the big kids were diving through a hole in the float. And uh, I thought, well, that looks pretty fun. So I tried to do that and uh, my, I got stuck in the middle. And so my head was under the float, and my legs were on top of the float, and I couldn't get up because my legs were up, and I couldn't go any further down because my legs were stuck. And I just thought, like seven-year-old me, I was like, well, this is it. It's been a good run. Good job. My brother jumped in the pool and saved my life. Uh, There's a little bit of argument in my family about uh, who takes credit for saving me and who was or wasn't paying attention during that moment. Uh, So if you ever come to a family dinner, then you can uh, feel free to... Uh, add your voice to that debate. Um, But it it just reminds me, where can you turn in a moment of desperation? In that moment, my brother jumped into the pool and saved my life. Where can you turn in a moment of desperation? If you're feeling lonely in a city where people are constantly moving, where can you turn when you're feeling lonely? Where can you turn when you're feeling anxious about the future? Because we live in a city that not only is transient, but it's a city that also is very expensive. Where can you turn when you're not sure how your finances are going to work out? Where can you turn in a moment of desperation? When you're feeling lonely or worried? 
Where can you turn in a moment of desperation when the clutches of sin or a bad habit have just wrapped their, themselves around your heart and you just can't break free and you can't change yourself? Where can you turn in a moment of desperation? Or where could you turn in a moment of desperation when you're running from God and some sailors who worship idols throw you into the ocean to try to get the storm to stop and you're sinking? Where can you turn in a moment of desperation? We find ourselves here in Jonah chapter 2, where if you missed last week and you're not familiar with the story, Jonah was a prophet of God called to carry a message of God's judgment to the, to the nation of Assyria, to its capital city, Nineveh, which was an absolutely deplorable city. Everyone in the world hated them. And God sent Jonah to speak a message, to speak his word to the city of Nineveh. Jonah didn't like that assignment, and so he fled the opposite direction by way of boat. He got on a boat, massive storm. The sailors were like, what are we going to do? And Jonah's like, I know what you do. Just throw me in, and it'll all stop. And so the sailors threw Jonah in. Jonah sinking down. He feels the cold water wrapping around his body. He feels himself sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. Maybe he saw his life flash before his eyes, and he cried out in that moment in the water, God, save me! And God did. Jonah chapter 1 ends, the Lord appointed a great fish who swallowed Jonah. And so now we have Jonah in the belly of a fish, in a moment of desperation, crying out to God. And what we find in this prayer, as Jonah celebrates the salvation that God has brought about, what we find is this incredible reality that in our moments of desperation, God hears you, but he doesn't just hear you, he commits himself to help you. And he doesn't just commit himself to help you, he is actually able to help you. He's not just a nice guy who's, who sees you and has compassion and wants to do something but can't really do anything. He's a mighty God, and salvation belongs to him. He is able to save you, friends. He is able to save you. The main idea I want you to take home today is that God alone can save you, so worship God alone. God alone can save you, so worship God alone. And why is it that God alone can save you? Three realities that I want us to see in this prayer of Jonah from the belly of the great fish. First, God alone can raise the dead. Second, God alone can cleanse the guilty. And third, God alone is worthy of worship. God alone can save you, so worship God alone. Point number one, God alone can raise the dead. God is able to bring life even to the most hopeless of situations, even into the grave itself. Our God is able and mighty and willing and kind and glorious to save because salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah cried out, sinking down into the depths, not knowing what on earth was going to happen, and he cried out, and God delivered him. God Throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of images and metaphors that are used for death. And we miss out on them because we don't have too many met metaphors for death in our culture, in our language. 
But the most frequent one was a picture of a watery chaos. And so you'll often hear words, especially in the Psalms. And by the way, Jonah's prayer is almost entirely plagiarized from the book of Psalms. But, but there's lots of images throughout the Psalms of, of places like the deep or the pit or Sheol. And those are just all various ways to describe death itself. And so what is Jonah crying out? He's crying out saying, I was on the brink of death itself and God saved me because God alone can raise the dead. So let's read together Jonah chapter 1 or Jonah chapter 2 verse 1. Then the Lord, then the Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. So notice there, this is past tense. So when did Jonah pray for God to save him? While he was sinking down into the water. And it was a moment of desperation, right? Out of my distress. So if you're feeling distressed today, friends, then don't just run and, and hide. Call out to God. I called out of the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol, you'll see that word all over the Old Testament. And so often we just kind of skip over it. We're like, I don't know what that means. So we just kind of glaze over it. Sheol was the realm of the dead. So a typical Jewish person in Jonah's day believed that underneath the earth that we walk on, there was a realm of the dead. So when someone departed from this life, they were buried. Why? To put them closer into that realm of the dead. Or you'll often see throughout Scripture, and even in Jonah chapter 3, which we'll cover next week, you see that often an image of repentance is burying yourself in the dust. You lay down and you cover yourself with dust. You're just pushing yourself closer to the realm of the dead because you realize that that's where you deserve to be. And you beg God to raise you up. Sheol, the place of the dead. So when someone died, and you would ask a Jewish person in Jonah's day, where did they go? Oh, they went down. They went down to Sheol. And so out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, Jonah said, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, the deep it's another common image for death, for the realm of the dead, for the clutches of death throughout the Old Testament. So you're sinking down into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Now, what Bible story does that remind you of? The flood surrounded me. Maybe it reminds you of the story of Noah in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 where God determined to judge the earth, and so he sent a global flood and saved one family, Noah. And from that moment on, water becomes this motif and this theme throughout Scripture of God's impending judgment. So Jonah is saying here that you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. Who did the casting into the deep? Who sent the flood in Noah's day? Who sent the waters to crash over Jonah's head? It was the Lord. God loves you too much to tolerate your sin, friends, because he knows that it's dangerous for you. So he's not going to let you sit in it. He's going to send a flood and do whatever it takes to stop your sin because he loves you, because he loves you, friends. 
And of course, we also know that a, a final flood of God's judgment is coming. And that's why we have to flee to Christ and find life in him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Again, this is Jonah's acknowledgement that this is God's punishment of his sin. This isn't just happenstance. This isn't just the sailors who threw him into the sea. This isn't just his own guilt. This is God's judgment of his sin. Verse 5, skip down a couple verses. We'll come back to verse 4. The waters closed in over me to take my life. So again, this is an image, the waters, the realm of the dead, the watery chaos underneath the earth where we bury our dead. But it's also a literal description of Jonah's impending death, right? The waters are literally wrapped around him. He felt himself suffocating. Maybe he opened his mouth to cry out in desperation because his lungs were completely empty and he felt the waters rush into his lungs. Maybe that happened. But the deep surrounded me. Jonah felt death itself closing in on him. You're out of places to hide, Jonah. Weeds were wrapped about my head. The kind of weeds that Jonah's talking about here grew in the Red Sea. Almost every place that this kind of weed is talked about in the Bible, it's in reference to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea, like the flood in Noah's day, is one of the predominant images throughout the Old Testament, where, where God saved the Israelites led by Moses. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, and they came to the Red Sea. And they said, well, now what are we going to do? And God parted the Red Seas. The Red Seas opened up and made a dry pathway for the Israelites to cross through. And then the waters of the Red Sea crashed back down on the Egyptian oppressors. Do you see how God delivers the downcast? God delivers the slave. God delivers the one who has been unjustly treated. And his judgment is coming to destroy the wicked. And so Jonah's saying that these weeds, these weeds wrapped around his head, he says, I'm drowning in the Red Sea. God's judgment is on me. I'm being punished like the nations. At the roots of the mountains... Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. So again, think about that picture of we dwell on the earth and underneath of us there's a realm of the dead. This is, this is how a Jewish person would, would see the world. That's, don't, don't take that as a geological statement. It's more of a spiritual, poetic, cosmological statement that, that we live on the earth and figuratively symbolically, there's a realm of the dead underneath of us. Don't get too caught up on that. And so the roots of the mountains would, would be so down deep, the foundation of the mountains itself were getting closer and closer to the realm of the dead. We're under the earth. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The prison gates of hell. The bars were closing in on Jonah and he knew there was no way to escape. Everything looked bleak. There was no hope. Maybe Jonah said, well, this is it. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And then, a glorious three-letter word. Yet. Yet. 
Whenever you see that word in your Bible, circle it, underline it, draw stars around it, yet, because it indicates a change, a beautiful, stunning change of direction in this case. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I was dying, yet you brought up my life from the pit. So you notice everything that Jonah's been describing is down. I went down to the pit. I went down to Sheol. I went down under the waters. And we even pointed that out in Jonah chapter 1, where Jonah literally goes down to Joppa, and he goes down into the boat, and he goes down to sleep, and then he goes down into the waters. Everything in Jonah has been downward spiral, out of control, into sin and misery and disgustingness. And now, here we have yet, you brought up my life from the pit. The pit, again, a common image for death. And so this is Jonah saying, I was as good as dead and God raised me up. Oh, Lord, my God. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, my life was fainting away. Again, Jonah knew this was his last chance. It was going to be now or it was going to be never. This was a moment of desperation. And unless God showed up, Jonah was toast. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah was practically, poetically dead. He was as good as dead. And God raised him up. God raised him up. Throughout the Bible, the primary hope of God's people is a hope of resurrection. And today, our primary hope as the people of God, as disciples of Christ, is a hope of resurrection. Why can you have hope? Because we worship a God who alone can raise the dead. God alone can save you, so worship God alone. Let's spin this out a little bit more. Death is inevitable. Unless Jesus comes back, we know that we will all die one day. Hebrews chapter 9 says, It's appointed a man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. And God interrupts it. Because God alone can raise the dead. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus gave his commentary on the story of Jonah. And he, he made it a story... Not about a prophet or a fish or about Nineveh, but a prophet about resurrection hope. Because if you ask Jesus, what's the point of, of the book of Jonah? Jesus would have said, God alone can raise the dead. See it in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So Jesus doing all these spectacular things, making these incredible claims about himself, saying that he has, the, he has the authority of God because he alone can forgive sins, saying that he alone can raise the temple if it's demolished. He's claiming this outrageous authority. And so the, 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 his opponents, his enemies, the religious authorities say to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What's going on? Prove it. Verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is happening in Jonah chapter 2 according to Jesus? It's a story about resurrection from the dead. Jonah was swallowed by a fish for three days, and Jesus was swallowed up by the earth, buried in a borrowed tomb for three days. The Bible is incredible. And and very interesting here is that, that Christ even compares the fish that swallowed Jonah to a sort of sea monster, which is another image for death in the Jewish mind. And and so many, many people, you see this throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Job with creatures like Leviathan. People just imagined that death was like this dragon sea monster that was going to come up and swallow you whole when it was your time. And so Jesus says, that's what swallowed Jonah. And so, verse 40, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the resurrection of Christ is a sign. It proves God's authority. But that's not all it does, friends. Because we don't just need God to have raised someone up in the past. Like, sure, that's great. Jonah, happy for you, man? Like, glad things are working out? Glad you're not in the ocean anymore? Like, Jesus, that's great. Glad that you're not in the grave anymore? But we need God to raise us up as well, right? Because death is inevitable. And so in one way, it doesn't matter if something happened 2,000 years ago, if nothing can stop the train of death from charging towards us. We need God to raise us up and friends That's why Jesus rose up from the dead. Ephesians chapter 2, we read it earlier in the service. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. Friends, Christ died to save you. Full stop. But he didn't just die to save you. He also rose to save you. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So what Paul is saying there is, it doesn't matter if Jesus died on the cross and he's still in the grave. If that's the story, then we can all pack up and go home and church is just a sham. Christianity is just a sham. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, then wow, we have hope upon hope upon hope. Because we know that he will never die again. So friends, in your own hope, yes, remember and revel in the fact that Christ died for you. But never forget, friends, that he rose from the dead, and he's alive today. If you are a Christian, know this from Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, that you were dead. You were as good as dead. You might as well have been with Jonah sinking down into the depths of the sea. But Christ died for you and rose up with you. Because death is a monster 
that Christ has slain. You were as good as dead, and Christ snatched you out of the monster's jaws. Because death is a monster that Christ has slain. I'm not just making that up. I don't think that just sounds good. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25, and then skip down to 54 through 56. The last enemy to be abolished is death. You see death being personified there? Death is a character. Death is an enemy. Death, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Death has been swallowed up. So the great sea monster that was going to swallow all of us up has been itself swallowed, has been itself vanquished. The last enemy to be abolished is death. And friends, it has been destroyed. It has been defeated by the resurrection of Christ. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Imagine if, if, you, if you like owed this massive debt to the mafia. And every day the mafia was like breathing down your neck. I don't know if that's still a thing. The mafia, I don't, maybe it is. There's some police officers here that can maybe tell me that later. Imagine if the mafia was like breathing down your neck every day. And they're like, you're going to pay. You're going to pay, punk. I'm going to get you. If you don't pay, I'm coming for you. I'm going to get you. I'm not stopping. Where's my money? Where's my money? Come on. You want me to, you want me to send my guys in here to get my money? Because I'm going to get it. Imagine if that was every day of your life. You're constantly sweating. You're constantly worrying. When's the shoe going to drop? When are they going to get tired of waiting? When are they going to run out of patience? Well, imagine if the, if the police arrested the mafia boss and shipped him off to some island prison somewhere far away, and all of his cronies and henchmen, they shipped them off with him, and you're freed. That's a, that pales in comparison, but it's just a little tiny picture of what Christ did. Because death was a monster worse than a mafia boss breathing down your neck saying, I'm coming for you, and Christ said no. He said no, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So friends, you don't need to be a better person. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about improving yourself so that you can please God. Christianity is about being a dead person and being made alive, being raised to life with Christ. Friends, you can't impress God because you're dead, so stop trying. And instead, come to him in faith and plead with him to raise you up from the dead. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then come to him in faith and find life. You cannot impress God because you are dead. For those of you that are Christians, remember the resurrection of Christ because it is your only hope. Your only hope is that Christ was raised from the dead. We'll get more into exactly how does the resurrection of Christ impact our lives today in a few minutes. But I also just want to acknowledge verse 2. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. So friends, in a moment of desperation, you are not alone. Sin is not your only option. Worry is not your only option. 
Despair is not your only option. Pray. 1 Peter 5 says, Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So friends, in a moment of desperation, you are not alone. Just like my brother jumped in the pool and saved me, Christ has plunged himself into death itself to save you. So in a moment of desperation, pray, run to him. We're going to be gathering together next week at 5.30 p.m. Sunday, second Sunday prayer. I hope that you'll be there as we desperately, urgently cry out to the Lord together. God alone can raise the dead. So why are we dead? And how does God raise us up? That brings us to the second point. God alone can forgive the guilty. God is able to bring power and salvation into the most desperate of situations, and he's able to bring grace and forgiveness to the most shameful of sinners. Friends, Jonah was guilty. He wronged God. He committed sin. He was a heinous sinner. And in verse 4, we skipped over. I want to come back to it now. Jonah 2.4, we see that sin separates us from God, but God draws us back. Sin separates us from God, but God draws us back. Jonah says in verse 4, Then I said, he's quoting himself, what he was thinking as he was falling down into the depths. I said, I am driven away from your sight. Now, friends, careful what you wish for, because that's what Jonah was asking for and pursuing for all of chapter 1. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And then he's sinking down into the ocean, and he's like, I have everything that I've ever wanted for the last chapter of my life. I'm away from the presence of the Lord, and it's not good. There's a lot of irony in Jonah's story. There's a lot of irony here in verse 4. Jonah said, I am driven away from your sight. And this is a picture of a universal reality, that sin separates us from God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 says, your iniquities, your iniquities, your wrongdoing, your shortcomings, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Friends, a lot of people believe that we're born neutral with God, and some people mess it up, and some people do all right in it. Friends, we're not born neutral with God. We're born as his enemies. Because of our sin, our sin separates us from God. And today in our culture, like there's a lot of emphasis, I think rightly placed on, on appropriate boundaries towards people that have sinned against you and have wronged you. And yet when it comes to God, we just assume that we can wrong him all day and that there won't be any kind of boundaries or any kind of separation. We assume that God is just a pushover. Friends, God is not a pushover. He is holy. Our sin separates us from him. But God draws us back. Verse 4, again, I am driven away from your sight, yet, yet, that beautiful word, again, a change of direction, yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish worship in Jonah's day. It was the place where God himself dwelled. It was where God made his covenant purpose known, his presence known to his people. 
And Jonah's saying, I'm getting back there. It's not merely a hopeful statement saying, I'm going to get out of the water, I'm going to get out of the fish, I'm going to worship in Jerusalem again. Sure, he's saying that. That's not all he's saying. When the temple was first built by King Solomon, Solomon gave a famous prayer to dedicate the temple. And hear these words. So look at Jonah chapter 4 one more time. Yet I sh- Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, sorry. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Let those words be printed in your mind. And now let's read 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 35 to 36. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place, the temple, the newly built temple being dedicated right here, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So looking to the temple is an image for repentance, for turning away from your sin and literally turning towards God. Because that's where his covenant presence dwells, in the temple. And now why the temple? Why doesn't Jonah say, I will again look on Israel. I'll again look on my homeland. I'll again look on my household. No, he says, I'll again look on the temple. Why the temple? Because that's where God is. And so Jonah is not just saying, I'm a sinner, but it's all going to work out. Jonah is saying, I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God, but I'm going to get back to him. Friends, God's forgiveness of your sins is not merely an escape from hell. It is reconciliation to God himself. Sin separates, God's forgiveness brings back together. He's bringing you back to the temple. Your sin drives you away. He's bringing you back. He's bringing you back. The reward is not an escape from hell. The reward is God himself. Friends, we get to know him. And God is able to do all this. God is able for people like Jonah to look upon the holy temple to be with him because of what Jesus did. Because of Christ, God alone can forgive our sins. And usually, when we hear that statement, we think about the cross, where Christ died for our sins, and that's true, but that's not the whole picture. Yet again, I think we ought to look at the resurrection of Christ. Look at Romans chapter 4, verses 24 to 25. Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He alone has been free from sin and wrongdoing. Jesus died for our sins. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He died for our sins. Yes, the cross is our only hope, but that's not the end of the story. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word justification is a massively important word. It's a legal declaration by which God considers you, his people, not guilty, but righteous instead. And where did Christ 
accomplish our justification? Where did he make it possible? According to Romans chapter 4, not only at the cross, but in his resurrection. At the resurrection, Jesus justifies. So why can you be in the holy temple again? Why can you be cleansed from your sin and be with God again? Because Christ rose from the dead. And the alternative there means that if Christ didn't raise from the dead, even if he died for our sins, we would still be separated from God. And now we would just have the blood of Christ on our hands too. But because Christ rose from the dead, we read this earlier, but 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. So friends, know your guilt. Know your guilt. You have offended God, but he has made a way for you to know him. But the resurrection of Christ is not merely the hope of the forgiving of our sins. It's also the hope of the cleansing of our sins. So God forgives the guilty. He also transforms the guilty. And he does that by the resurrection of Christ. A few chapters over from Romans chapter 4, where, where we hear that Christ was raised for our justifications, we see in Romans chapter 6 that Christ sanctifies his people by his resurrection. Romans chapter 6, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Jesus rose to give you resurrection power if you're a Christian, if you've been forgiven of your sins. So if you are in a moment of desperation because a, a, a nasty sin just holds its sway over your heart and you can't stop no matter how hard you try, then know this. Jesus rose to help you to sanctify you, to make you more like himself, to transform you, friends. And so, friends, if Jesus is not in the grave, then there is no sin that can have hold and sway over your life forever. What is our only hope to be forgiven of the sin that separates us from God? It's the resurrection of Christ alone. What is our only hope that we will be made like Christ. It's the resurrection of Christ alone. Because how could Christ help us if he was still in the grave? How could Christ send the Holy Spirit to help us if he was still in the grave? He couldn't, because he would be dead. But he's not dead anymore. He rose from the dead. So even if Christ died for your sins, if he didn't raise from the dead, we would just be powerless and puny. And sin would still be this monster coming against us every day. But he did raise from the dead, and so we're not powerless. We have a resurrected king who is our great helper. So know your assurance. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him alone for your salvation, then know this, friends. Yes, you have sinned against a holy God. And yes, your sin separates you from him. But he has made a way for you to come back. You are his forever. He will not give up on you no matter how persistent and ugly your sin is. He will never let 
you go because Christ is not in the grave. A few verses down in Romans chapter 6. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you are his follower, you will never die because Christ is alive. So friends, God's design for your life is not to live in shame and guilt, but to look to the empty tomb and to know that you have hope and to know that you have life because Jesus isn't in there anymore. That's God's design for your life. So what do we do? How do we respond to this dead-raising, sin-forgiving God who drives us away from his sight and yet again we shall look on his holy temple? How do we respond? Point number three, God alone is worthy of worship. God alone can save you, so worship God alone. Verses 8 and 9. The only way that we can respond to this astounding, gracious, mighty, powerful, sin-forgiving, dead-raising God is to worship Him. To lay our lives down flat for Him. Jonah's song, it is a song, it's a prayer, but it's also a song. It climaxes with this statement in verses 8 and 9 about Jonah giving himself to know and serve the God who has known and served him. So verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now that's an interesting statement there. These people, these idol worshipers, these people who don't worship the true God, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. Steadfast love is covenant love. It's family love. It's never giving up love. And so specifically, Jonah's saying that if you don't worship the Lord, it's not just that you are refusing to love him, but that you're not in his covenant. You're not in his family. You're not in the people that he has saved. So friends, the point don't worship idols, because then if you worship all these fake gods, you can't know the true God, the living God. Don't forsake your hope of steadfast love. Give yourself to the covenant to know this God, to be in his family. But I, verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now, I want to make clear here, this is not Jonah pleading his case based on future obedience. Friends, don't try to bargain with God. Because two reasons. You have nothing to offer him. That's the pessimistic reason. You have nothing to offer him. You could try to bargain with God. Be like, God, I'll give you like two pennies and half a lollipop if you forgive me. It's foolish. It's foolish. Don't try to bargain with God because you have nothing to offer. But there's also a much more optimistic reason why you shouldn't bargain with God, and because that's because God wants so much more than to merely have his wrath appeased. He wants to know you. He wants all of you. He doesn't just want to deal with you. He wants to know you. So don't forsake your hope of steadfast love. Don't run from God's covenant family by worshiping other things, by living for your career, by, by running from the church. 
Don't run from the family of God. Run towards him. Give yourself to him. Not by bargaining with God or earning your way in, but by coming to him alone and appealing to his grace and power, which alone can raise the dead and alone can forgive the guilty. This is not Jonah bargaining with God. It's Jonah seeing and savoring the grace and the mercy and the power of the covenant-keeping God. And he ends with this climactic statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. So in contrast to these empty idol worshipers from verse 8, God always keeps his covenant. God always keeps his promises. God always saves his people. God will never give up on his family because they're his forever. So friends, what do I want you to do? I want you to marvel at the greatness of God. He is able to save. Even in the most desperate circumstance, he is able to save. There is nothing too big for God to deal with, for God to save you from. Not even being swallowed by a fish or being hung on a cross is too big for our God to save. So friends, of course he will save us. Of course he will be kind. Of course he will be gracious to us. Marvel at the greatness of our God that nothing is too big for him. And revel in the kindness of God. He's not just able to save. He does save. Jonah was in the fish. I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. I'll be with you again. The temple where you dwell, I'll be with you. That's pure grace. Jonah had nothing to offer God at that point. Jonah had proven himself completely and utterly worthless to God. God doesn't save Jonah because he's like grasping at straws. He's like, I guess I'll deal with you because the great resignation and the cost of hiring is really high right now. No. God says, Jonah, I'm going to save you out of my mercy. Revel in the kindness of God, friends. He does save. I'm going to invite the music team up now. And just remind you, friends, that the risen Christ is worthy of all worship. So worship him. Turn to him and be saved. Friends, the risen Christ is worthy of all worship. So share him. There are empty idol worshipers all around us who need to know the hope of the risen Christ. If you weren't here last week, last week we shared about a new resource that we've created called Know Jesus. And it's a Bible study that walks you through the gospel according to Mark. 15 sessions through the gospel according to Mark. And we want everyone, especially the members of Pillar DC, to pick up two copies. One for you and one for a non-believing friend that you'll work through it with. You can ask them this week. Say, friend, I was praying for you this weekend. Would you be interested in reading the Bible with me sometime? And those books, the, the point of walking through the gospel according to Mark is just so that we would see Christ. And see how worthy he is. He's worthy of our worship, friends. So let's lay ourselves down to give ourselves to him. Let's lay ourselves down to worship him. Let's watch God raise your non-believing friends and family and co-workers to life in him forever. In Revelation chapter 7, Jonah ends his prayer with this, this, this climactic statement, salvation belongs to the Lord. That statement's repeated in Revelation chapter 7. And so I'll close us with this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, the kinds of people that Kendall's going to go share with, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for our sins, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Friends, salvation belongs to the Lord. God alone can save you, so worship God alone. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you have raised your son Jesus up from the dead, and we thank you that you have raised us up with him. God, I pray that you would help us to give ourselves to worship you alone. I pray that you would be glorified by our lives, not as we try to earn your favor, but as we just revel in the fact that you have accepted us through the blood and the resurrection of your son. And God, in the moments of desperation that we will face this week, I pray that we would look not to our own improvement, not to our own spiritual activities, not to our own goodness, but to you and your goodness and to your son and his empty tomb. And that we would know that because he is not in there, we can have hope. Because you alone can raise the dead and you alone can forgive the guilty. And it's for your name we pray. Amen.